you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action. I'm delighted to say that here on Reba Radio, we're joined by Samita Singer OBE, Tom Guy and Mwiwa Oki to talk about the context of inclusion in architecture today. Um, and what's really great is you're my first live guests in the bookshop, in the studio. Come on, yes. Yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> There is a real, there are real people in here with me, which is great. And to see Tom, Tom, it's the first time I'm seeing you in 3D, uh, Samita. I've had the pleasure of meeting you before. Um, I'm going to start with you, Samita, if I may. Um, how would you describe yourself and uh, why are you passionate about inclusion in architecture? Oh, okay. So um, how would I describe myself? I would say I'm a mum. I don't know why I said that first, but I'm, I'm a migrant woman. I'm an international person um, and, yeah, I'm an inclusive person as well. And, and why, why are you so passionate about inclusion in architecture? Um, my, my experiences uh, of um, coming to this country and trying to work as an architect have really influenced the way I see inclusion because um, when I came here, I didn't feel included. And um, so I set about finding ways that we could actually include people with an architecture. So I think that set off my enthusiasm for inclusion because without inclusion, you can't have architecture. Tom, uh, you yourself, how would you describe yourself and why are you passionate about inclusion in architecture? Um, I'd describe myself, I guess, foremost an architect. Um, and I, my, my passion for diversity started when I was at university doing my undergrad. And the Christian Union did a talk on homosexuality in the Bible and they had a trainee vicar come in and normally they had about 10 attendees and this one had a couple of hundred and he said, you couldn't be gay and Christian. Oh, wow. And that was the start of my sort of diversity journey. And we put a talk on in response. And we had a vicar and we had a rabbi. And it was an inclusive talk. And we said, yes, you can be gay and have a religion. And that event is still going today, 16 years later, National Student Pride. And it centres around conversation, debate and talk. And it was off the back of that that I then got involved within diversity within architecture and started Architecture LGBT six years ago. Oh, we'll talk to you more about that in a second. And Mwiwa, if I can ask you that same question, how would you describe yourself and uh, uh, why are you passionate about inclusion in architecture? 
Uh, hi, hi everyone. Um, yeah, um, I'll, I'll describe myself. I'm an architect. I'm a Nigerian architect. I was born in Nigeria, grew up in London, uh, South London, big up. Um, and um, I recently moved um, to the design and digital team at MACE um, from my previous practice um, at Grimshaw Architects. Um, and I was found a founder of the chair and of the founder and chair of the uh, multi-ethnic um, group and allies, the Mecca Network at uh, Grimshaw, uh, which was founded two, two three years ago. Um, and um, sort of the role sort of try to drive cultural change for our colleagues globally. Um, and my passion for um, inclusion sort of started in my university years, but it also got sort of germinated throughout um, my uh, professional practice. Um, and the reason I am a little bit more um, uh, passionate about it is because I feel like um, I, 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 I sort of look towards the next generation, which I think I am part of. Uh, the sort of the, the fervent, the vigor, and the sort of um, uh, the drive that they have to change things, I feel is something that needs to be celebrated and bring to the fore. And I feel I'm, 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 I can be a spokesperson for, for that movement. Thanks very much for, for those introductions. And it's been quite a journey, really, hasn't it? This this idea of, of inclusion in architecture. Um, Samita, um, <laughs> you've been on this journey a long time. I, I, <laughs> I don't want to overemphasize it, but um, you, you know, you started Architects for, for Change. Tell me about the journey to get to that that point. Okay, thanks. So yes, it's it's been an interesting journey and a journey of inclusion. And I think my experiences have shaped my intention towards inclusion. So my first defining experience is that I was born and brought up in India, which is a very diverse and multicultural society. So I have my family um, where there are people of all different colors. So if my uncle was here, he'd be called black, for example. And um, have friends who speak different languages. I speak five. Um, we have so many festivals. So I studied my parts one and two in India. And I had very strong role models uh, in Delhi, like Arundhati Roy, who was uh, four years senior to me at the School wow. of Architecture. That's quite a name drop. <laughs> yeah, she really inspired me. And then I had uh, female teachers like Revati Kamath, who sadly died last year, Nalani Thakur, and you know, really strong women. So I got, uh, I come from very poor families, so uh, I did well at architecture. I got a scholarship to study environmental design, which wasn't known very much in those days, 30 years ago. And um, I came to study at Cambridge uh, to do my master's. And um, I settled in the UK. And it was a shock to me because I just thought, surely UK is far ahead in inclusion and, you know, women are far ahead. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't. So I was having a huge struggle getting work. I joined Women in Architecture in 1996. And I became chair of Women in Architecture in 1999. And then um, it was announced that Women in Architecture was going to be disbanded <laughs> just after, a few months after I'd become chair and I'd started organizing events. And I thought, well, let's think bigger. 
And we were going to be made into a special interest group. And I said, well, being a woman isn't a special interest. And <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I luckily had a very good supportive vice chair. And together we had was this... Was this at the RIBA, to be yes, clear? Right. Yes, yes. So these were, these were RIBA committees. Yes. That were, so the Women in Architecture one was disbanded because it was being made into a special interest group. Um, well, the RIBA supported women in architecture, but I think it was mostly independent of the RIBA. We had our meetings here, but they said we don't want anything. We're just going to have special interest groups. And so I said, fine, we're going to have this huge group, which is going to include women, black architects, students, disabled people, LGBTQ+, you know, everybody we could think of who weren't included in the mainstream. And we didn't have a name, and it was Tony Chapman who came up with the name Architects for Change. And um, I kept working towards it, and it was uh, approved by the RRBA Council in January 2000. And then I had to find people to populate the different posts. Um, and so, but I kept being chair of women in architecture. We had a wonderful um, lecture by Julia Barfield, I remember that, and different events. Um, and then in July, we finally had the people in place and we were inaugurated in this building. Um, and we had, for example, I left being the chair of women in architecture and Angela Brady took over as women in architecture chair. Um, she later became president of the RIBA. We've had Helen Taylor. We've had amazing people, Virginia Newman, who I think who's still in AFC. And it's wonderful to see that AFC is still continuing, still doing amazing work under different chairs. They're incredibly supportive of the work that I'm doing. And Tom, uh, architecture LGB, LGBT+, plus, you know, you, you, just, you briefly described how that was born. Um, but, you know, certainly a, a lot of work going on there as well. Tell us a little bit about, uh, about that. So we started in London and with a Pride Breakfast, which we held at the RBA. Um, and then we sort of built over the years. So we've now, this year we've launched in Scotland. Uh, last couple of years ago, we launched in Manchester. We've got a network going into the Northeast and the Southwest. So we're sort of expanding around the UK and sort of creating a safe space for LGBT plus architects and those working within the profession to meet other people, have support, role models, mentorship and events. It's great to hear. Certainly there's um, a sense that the, the need for it, has it been always welcomed uh, within, you know, if we're talking about the context of the, the journey to inclusion in architecture, has it been straightforward to, to have Pride events? No. Um, when we first approached the ROBA, we were told we had to hire the space at, corp at corporate rates. So we had a bit of an internal fight till we got given the staff building. Um, we found companies coming on board as sponsors relatively straightforward and we've got a lot of a lot of um, financial support from architecture practices which is how we fund everything we do um, and it's been a bit of a journey of inclusion within within so our first event was 95% white men and there's been a real drive to make everyone feel welcome and at the events and supported so we've been having a huge push on intersectionality and making sure 50% of our team is women and really trying to be an inclusive organisation. 
Yeah, I think it's really important when it comes to whatever identifier that we appear to be grouped into, whether it's uh, around underrepresented racialized groups or or sexuality or, or gender, that uh, there is still a lot of difference within each of those groups. Um, we were, uh, you recently featured in our Black History Month campaign, uh, spotlighting great talent. You know, what well, actually, I'll be really curious to know what was your your thinking behind the decision to actually agree to do that why was it important for you well um i the reason why i agreed to do it was because there there needs to be more uh, vis- visibility of uh of of um of, of different races within the architecture profession so that people know that it it is possible to be a, a black architect and there's an interesting quote that I saw when I was looking into this. It was like um, visibility is like the like having more visibility is like one of the first steps to to um, to just sort of understand uh, the, your your path. Um, and saying that, I was also um, profiled in um, one of um, um, uh, an artist. Um, so who runs Black British Network, Cephas Williams. He, he did this art portrait about, called The Portrait of Black Britain. And what he was trying to do, I don't know if you know about it, what he was trying to do is to like sort of showcase like the variety of um, the Black experience because the Black experience isn't uh, a monoculture. Um, and if we put more, put more spaces to, um, to Black faces around it, it, in architecture, it, it becomes... It's this. It's this other um, uh, way of, of influencing the younger generations to do uh, to go into the profession. We're joined by Samita Singer OBE, Tom Guy, and Mwiwa Oki talking about the context of inclusion in architecture today. We've heard a little bit of history uh, from the three of them, and I'm really curious to to hear from you about. Your, your thoughts on the idea of progress. Have we actually made any around inclusion in the times that you've been working and campaigning for inclusion in your different ways? If I can start with you, Moiwa, what, what, what are your views on that? Um, well, if I look at my sort of um, experience you know, my, uh, from, from 2010, when I sort of started, my consciousness of started being consciously aware of architecture and architectural impression to now in that 10 year span, um, I feel, yes, there are, there is progress. For example, um, each for the, each of the um, um, practices that I worked at, at Mace, at Grimshaw, uh, uh, we have uh, diverse networks. Uh, Mace has like seven to, sort of covered all the different aspects of diversity. Uh, Grimshaw had five. And that wasn't a normal, that's sort of normal now, but it wasn't a normal thing, um, let's say back in 2010 when I was doing my part one and things. So I think, yes, there is the progress in that. Um, but then I'll, I'll, also, I'll also try to say, if we're thinking about diversity of thought, diversity of thinking, diversity of sort of approach, I also, I also say there is some way to go because I, I believe, um, which I'm also practicing because that, Architects don't need to actually work in uh, sort of design-led practices. I feel like we need to be sort of going out into wider industries, um, sort of taking the learnings from different um, industries in different sectors and trying to put that into practice within the architecture industry. 
for example, in, in, in the tech industry, for example, they have uh, this organization called um, UK Black Tech, uh, which builds sustainable diverse initiatives in tech so that and also implement practices going to it's a company that goes into different um, tech, technology um, uh, companies and uh, try to sort of uh, recruit um, uh, 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 people who are mentors and interns to to so that they can get into the, the tech tech world. Also in financial services, this this initiative called Ten Thousand Black Interns, um, which so they in the past five years they've tried to get ten thousand black interns into professional financial services and these are all this type of um um sort of initiatives that ordinarily architects don't know about because we're sort of siloed into the the we're mm. working in design led practices would whereas you, we mm, i mean uh, smita and, and tom would you say that that was a, a valuable thing to do or something that's already being done what are your thoughts on what we were as to say so I think industry, other industries have been a long way ahead of architecture. And mm. so, for example, in 1984, IBM introduced a gender and um, sexuality policy. Four years later, Margaret Thatcher's government implemented Section 28, ban banning the promotion of homosexuality in schools. The reason IBM did that in 1984 is because they understood the business case for inclusion. And if your staff are themselves at work and they're happy, they perform better and they stay longer. And I think the corporate world understood that and progressed a lot quicker than architecture. And maybe a lot of that is down to the size of practices. We have much smaller, uh, we have a lot of medium, small size practices. And our big practices aren't big compared to corporate. So actually the initiatives, you know, the 10,000 uh, black st uh, people, students into finance is the, the industry, the bigger corporate industry, I think, understands that better. Yeah, um, I think besides just the economic um, output, I think it's really important also to think of architecture as a creative profession. So the more diversity you have, the more creativity you actually have, which is uh, which is wonderful. So um, you know, I often compare architecture to say the fashion industry. You know, you have couture, uh, um, the you know the fashion industry. And, and they work with such diverse ideas, you know, they draw in, um, you know, uh, prints maybe from Africa, maybe some weaving from Asia, um, you know, they all put it together and they come up with this wonderful infusion of things, whereas architecture has failed in that way to include um, not just people, but also the cultures that come with people. So I think it would benefit as Tom's saying, you know, economically, and as Muivo was saying about, you know, um, the next generation, you know, encouraging the next generation, I think it would also become a richer, um, uh, you know, it would have a rich, richer product if we kind of thought of inclusion in a wider sense. Mm -hmm. And in terms of actions that can be taken, um, uh, you know, obviously I'm, I'm rolling out the, the, the CQ uh, work and I, I'm going to put my neck on the block here, Samita, because you, you've done my CQ workshop. Um, is, is CQ any 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 good? Actually, before you answer that, we haven't rehearsed this. I've just created 28 hours of content to move people forward using the idea of CQ. Uh, but, but, but all different 
contexts and ideas and perspectives are really important. So I'm, I'm bracing myself. Samisa, what do you think about CQ? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I had a very interesting experience doing the CQ and thank you very much for, for doing it. <laughs> I feel like I there's a but coming. Uh, well, the thing is that, um, you know, I was talking about defining experiences. So being a migrant woman who, who has worked in six countries and travelled to 47 I'm aware that there are lots more I haven't been to. But, um, you know, the idea of cultures and including cultures is, is really important for me. And the RIBA is in 115 countries. And we often forget that when we are, at the, you know, in this building. It's just us and the British and et cetera. But, you know, I was in an RIBA-validated school in Delhi. So for me, it was really important that when I came here, that I was part of this inclusion, inclusion process. So, um, you know, signing diversity uh, or inclusion charters is great. I know the NLA is also doing something like that. The RIBA has got an inclusion charter and cultural training. But I think it's a first step because if you truly embrace um, someone, you don't really need to sign anything in a way. You just include it mm. in your day-to-day -day work. Mm. And how do, you, how do you translate that inclusion to the cultures of different countries? What does inclusion mean to someone in, say, in uh, Malaysia or in China? Mm. How would we reflect on that in a cultural way? Not in a sense that, you know, this is Britain, this is how we do it, but to be more inclusive of other countries and other cultures. Mm. So, you know, definitely uh, CQ uh, is, is about working, relating effectively with people who have backgrounds that are, are different to us. But I, I was reflecting um, that actually even our own family members who might have really similar backgrounds, uh, CQ can be really helpful in terms of helping us navigate when you kind of develop different values. So uh, it's, it's, it's a, a useful piece of work to, as you say, that first foundational step so that you can then start to approach everything with uh, applying your CQ lens. Uh, Tom, if I were to turn to you and say, what actions, useful actions, have you seen practice put in place up until this point to, to try to be more inclusive? At our Christmas event a few years ago, fosters realised, fostering partners realised that they there was that some of their staff were coming to our event, but they weren't out at work. And after that, they set up an internal LGBT plus network and became platinum spots of our network. And since then, they've seen a huge change in the number of people that are out, comfortable and being themselves. And it was similar at Grimshaw's. Grimshaw's didn't have an LGBT network and they announced their gold sponsorship of our event at a CPD, lunchtime CPD, that Emily from Foster's, who's our vice chair, and I went along to and then started an internal network themselves. And... Practices may think, you know, they've, they've signed that charter, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the part one who can't see an LGBT plus role model or um, that feels that actually they can come out because they might have heard a homophobic slur or a transphobic slur or the, there's the reassurance that their project architect is going to be supportive of them, not just a bit of paper that's been signed by the practice. 
Really good point. And a reminder that the Reba communities, uh, those six groups of lived experience, uh, ones for race and religion, uh, economic diversity, uh, women, those with unpaid caring responsibilities, um, enable is, is those with uh, disabilities and neurodiverse. I've uh, forgotten the other two. Um, there are two more, which escape me at the moment. But the point is they're for, they're for staff at the RIBA at the moment, but the intention is to open those up to members so that people can feel there's a safe uh, space. But I think your point, Tom, is that not only uh, should there be something external for staff, but something internal as well in different practices. Absolutely. And I think it, that's much easier for the big practices. It gets much harder as you get down to small and medium-sized practices, of which there are many. So in those situations, it's about ensuring that language is modified and charters are signed, but actually read and understood and um, making sure everyone feels welcome to be themselves. And in an LGBT context, you, can't, you can hide it. So you, you can't hide your gender, but you can hide your, um, your sexuality. I'll correct myself, you can if you're trans. So um, I well, I worked at Nicholas Hair Architects after my part two, and it was a really inclusive employee, employer. I felt I could be myself. But one of my colleagues who was on the team I was working on didn't come out until after he'd left. And everyone has their own personal journey. And actually, that needs to be understood that someone might not be out, but could be facing their own internal dilemma, which could be... To, to do with family or religion or or just how comfortable they are and I think a lot of my generation have got internalized homophobia from the results of section 28 which banned any mention of being LGBT in school mm. so we grew up in a in a society where the newspapers were anti-LGBT there was no one or nothing that said it's okay to be yourself and um, we were. Can I just ask you about um, what what measures do you think can be put in place uh, that practice can to really track how how they're developing an inclusive culture? And what have you seen done that is worth shouting about? Right. Um, so I'm going to answer this question in two ways um, because I think your your the answer the question you asked was about what practices are doing, which is great, but also. I also would like to think about what Reba could be doing. Um, Go for it. Uh, so, uh, so one thing is, well, it's quite important to me anyway, is role modeling and mentorship. Um, there needs to, like I was saying earlier, um, increased visibility is an important step towards greater diversity. So if you increase the visibility of the different types of diverse individuals within the organization, diversity happens. And um, then I can also then sort of put, I, I know that that happened because in the practices I work I work, work, work in, Grimshaw, where I was previously in MACE, there is that um, visible visible presence of the different diverse uh, black uh, architects, black uh, construction managers, et cetera, who, who are actually making waves throughout the ranks of, of, of the, um, of, of, of their uh, of the companies, especially Mace, um, but also I then I have to then then ask about what we were what Reba role models and mentors are, are, are is, is is there much done about that to like spotlight um, uh, a black or diverse uh, talent within the architecture 
um, profession. I, I that I'll leave you <laughs> leave that up that to be answered by um, by by yourself. Um, but I also said I I also think the way to do that is in two ways because um, we can either all be like I said in architecture design practices or we can move around into different industries. Um, and if I just sort of touch on, on what uh, Samisha said about creativity and architecture as a creative industry, um, similar to the fashion industry, I, I sort of disagree a little because I think most industries are creative industries. They're designers, especially ones who design the urban environment. They are doing somewhat architecture-related uh, work, but they, are, they don't have the title of architects. They don't are not members of uh, the RIVA because maybe they are members of different bodies. And I think there is something that we need to do to bring those kind of people back into the fold of membership so that there is more people. There are more, uh, there's a bigger pool of, of talent to role model. Because if we're just talking insularly in the sort of design, architecture, design, uh, smaller practices or 100-person practices, there aren't going to be that many black architects to, who are in uh, sort of um, the higher echelons of, 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 of the industry to, 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 role, to role model. Because when I was growing up, it was only David Adray, you know? Um, so there are people who are in uh, architect-adjacent industries, like, for example, the tech industry, who like people who are working in like startup companies um, doing something radical, affecting the built environment, but they're not architects. They don't want to be called architects. They don't feel like they are architects. Tom Smith, so, do you have anything to, to, to come off the bar, to, to add to that? Um, absolutely. I, th I think to, um, for me, three things are really important. Um, some of which Mueva was talking about. So one is visibility. And it's really important to have visibility of different cultures, different ethnicities within architecture. And, uh, you know, when AFC was actually um, formed, I think I said a few months later, our job would be done when we're actually disbanded. <laughs> but yeah. uh, 21 yeah. years later, we're still there. So obviously there's work to be done. So visibility is really important. And how do we find visibility? So a lot of practices, um, you know, um, sign up to things. But you look at their leadership, you look at their boards, you know, how many people of color, how many people, uh, you know, from um, LGBTQ plus who are openly, you know, so are there on the board? You know, how many women are there on the board? For me, that is showing how, what an inclusive culture it is. So unless you can show, you don't, you don't sign, you don't tell, you show it, you show how inclusivity works, then mm. I'll believe you. And then um, the second thing for me is very important is the voice, having a voice. Because, you know, as Mueva was saying, you know, you can have maybe people, but what kind of voices do they have? Are they able to influence? And as Tom was saying, you know, one of his colleagues was not able to actually come out until, you know, they finished, they came out of that practice. So if you're not able to have that voice to be able to speak your, uh, to sing your song, basically, you can't, um, you know, you can't be who you are. Mm. You can't contribute 100% to your work. And the third thing is culture. What is the culture of the practice? 
you know, there is the saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> and that is really true because mm. you can have all these strategy of what uh, you can do for inclusive inclusion, but until you actually encourage this culture, you can't do anything. So I also work as a non-exec in the NHS and um, it is not a very inclusive culture because, you know, you would find a lot of the BAME communities are in the lower echelons and the board is primar primarily white. And I set up, I co-founded a group called the Seacall Group, uh, which promotes um, non-execs from different backgrounds into uh, the NHS boards. And um, this is another thing, you know, that how do we actually push people up to be visible, to be leaders, and then, you know, as Mui was saying about David Ajay, you know, that inspired him. So mm. we need many more people like that up there, visible, and the RIBA could do much more for that. And, and Tom, I mean, uh, just to, to pick up on, on your points, by the way, Mui, I've made notes. So uh, I'll, I'll certainly be, be, be taking all of that up and, and, and Sumit is always in my ear. So uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't need to necessarily take notes. She's on me all the time, which is great. It's what I need. So I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Tom, what, what are your thoughts on, on those measures and, and certainly some outcomes that you'd like to see as well? The first thing on top of my head is just what Samita was saying. Angela Dapper was brought in at Grimshaws as a principal and she's transformed their diversity, like making sure there's a woman at every single interview. And they suddenly got a lot more women at the top. And it's completely, it's driving change, not just strategy. Um, something I've not really talked about, but is, is transgender people are currently under attack across the media. And um, there's not that many trans visible architects. Uh, there's a few. But it, it's, I think, the next level of providing spaces where people feel they can be themselves and they can transition. And it's it's things like providing gender-neutral toilets. Stanton Williams have been encouraging their staff to include their pronouns in their email signatures. And it's it's giving people the voice to be themselves. Um, and hate crime against trans people has trebled in recent years. Um, five LGBT staff have quit the BBC because of them pulling out of the Stonewall Diversity Index and for a lot of transphobic articles that are going up. So it's in the media and it's around us and people absorb that. And that, I think, is really important that the RBA and groups like Architecture LGBT are, are trying to make a trans-inclusive environment. Yeah, really, really important points. Thanks for highlighting that. And uh, we hope to talk a, a bit about that on uh, Monday or Tuesday next week. I'm sorry, I haven't held the schedule in my head, but certainly we are, are talking, and, and unfortunately not with a, a, a trans architect, but someone who's in uh, construction. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Christina Riley, who you may know, is, is going to be coming on air to, to highlight the lived experience of trans lives as well. Um, we were coming back to you then. Um, let's assume I've done everything that you've asked. What does that look like and feel like to you? Hey, um, it'll be, how does, what would it look like? Um, it'll, it'll mean that um, as an architect, I have a plethora of options. Uh, when I finish my architecture training, which is like, it's pretty long, you, you know, I know that, uh, there is a different avenues that I can, um, that is open to me that I can go into. And there are people 
like who look like me, who was had similar background like me, are um, are there for me to like sort of reach out and have a connection with. Um, for example, I on on my in my spare time I, I work on a side project um, uh, called Modular, and we're looking at um, making digital twins of spaces um, cheap and easy to use and ubiquitous, just like digital photography is. And we're looking across the landscape of architecture and like who are, who is doing stuff like this, like who can we talk to that are that could be a role model? And there isn't that many people because the people who are um, doing it aren't architects. Well, they don't they don't they're not in the Reba circle. And um, that sort of duplicity or like multiplicity of um, experiences and different avenues to work um, is is something that we should be championing so that it's not just um, you know going through seven, seven years of um, architecture education through this linear path. And actually, I have to say something. The ARB are looking at they're doing they had this white paper looking at the the. Uh, trying to reimagine the uh, education process. And I think that's something that we, if it gets unlocked and there's a multiplicity of uh, people who can join the, the architecture practice or people, ha people um, um, when people graduate um, the sort of formal uh, architecture uh, undergrad, postgrad, they can go to different um, uh, industries. I think that would make architecture mm. a richer, richer richer um, uh, in industry and, and profession to, to be a part of. And uh, Samita, sort of to, to finally sum up, um, you're on council. What can you influence from there now, do you think? Um, well, this is, this is my second time in the council. So um, I'm, I'm just trying to see, you know, when, when, when I attended my first meeting um, this, this time, I just was counting the numbers of people of different ethnicities and cultures that were there. And I thought to myself sitting there, I'd like to see much more diversity in, in this room. And it's difficult to tell because it was a hybrid meeting somewhere in person, somewhere on the screen. So I haven't got the hang of it. I mean, at the moment it seems uh, pretty good, but I'd like to see, say, um, you know, um, people f who are openly gay, you know, up there. I hadn't seen anyone um, mm. there. So, you know, all these different, different flavors, you know, like it's Indian food, you know, you put all these spices and it brings up all the flavors. I just want to see more flavor in the RIBA, <laughs> <laughs> not right. just bland stuff. That sounds like a good plan. But I just wanted to say something that happened last night, which illustrated how um, beautiful diversity could be. So I was at an architecture award last night and the MC was a comedian called Paul Sinha. Um, who actually shares my surname. The chaser. <laughs> uh, sorry? Was it the chase? You know, the guy who's on the chase. Yeah, is it? Is, no, maybe, uh, maybe not. I don't, yeah, I don't I know. I think it might be. Yeah, anyway, carry on, be, carry yeah, on with your story. So he was the MC and he was excellent. Now, the thing about him is that he suffers from Parkinson's disease and he was on the podium. You could see his hands were shaking but he carried on beautifully. He was funny. We were laughing at his jokes and everything. And he was very spontaneous. He would pick up a lot of the architects actually dropped their awards. And he <laughs> <laughs> so he picked up on that, said something funny. He's also openly gay. Mm. And he talked about, you know, how he got married and he was 
proposed in Italy and he said, how many openly gay architects are in this room? And not many hands up. I, mm. Of course, I couldn't see in the dark. But, um, you know, the, that sort of openness. And, and the thing with Paul was that he was himself. He was being himself. So despite his disability, despite being a person of color, you know, he, he was and just being disabled, being gay, he was just being himself. So what is the value that a, a person can bring? It's not like seeing, it's seeing beyond all these different external things, but what is this person bringing to us? Sabita Singer, OBE, Tom Guy and Mwiwa Oki, thank you so much for joining me on Reba Radio. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action. Music.